Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am here in New York City. In faraway London, where she is resettling, we have Corey Shockey. Uh, who will tell us in a moment a little bit about what she's doing over there uh, in an undisclosed location in Washington, <laughs> D.C. We have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and Hello, Ed Luce. David. Hello. Ed Luce of the Financial Times is in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in our studio all by himself playing with the knobs and dials. Shivering. Who knows, I'm just who knows shivering. where this will all is lead. Is that safe? It is that safe? Doesn't fail before, it. Before we go and we get into uh, all the exciting things that we need to get into here, Corey, you know, I've just watched in Twitter and social media and so forth as everybody has buzzed about your relocation to London. And I think we need to kick this off with a brief description of what you're doing there. <laughs> so gladly, David. I am... Um, I am here in London about to start work as the Deputy Director General of a fantastic defense think tank, the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Uh, They published the military balance. They published a terrific journal called Survival. They do big meetings of defense ministers in Asia and in the Middle East, places where there's not the institutional framework to provide that kind of continuous dialogue that we have uh, across the Atlantic. Um, and full of smart, talented people that I'm going to wave my hands around and pretend like I am directing. <laughs> Does that work? Does that, <laughs> Works you know, for you, David. I, no, I've never tried the hand waving, but um, and and survival. That strikes me as a kind of an interesting name for a defense think tank. I, I know if Rosa, <laughs> it's my was, kind of magazine. <laughs> If Rosa, if Rosa were the head of her think tank, of course, the, the magazine would be called Oblivion or something. <laughs> Apocalypse. Apocalypse. <laughs> How about just survival, you hope? Yeah. So the IISS made its name in the 1950s as a place where um, academics and military people and intelligence people and technical people talked through the challenges that nuclear weapons were bringing into warfare. Um, and so it's a real privilege to join John Chipman's team and and try and think through some of the big challenges in warfare now. Uh, yeah, right. Not that not that we've gotten over the nuclear problem just yet. But, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you it's, know, it's it, two minutes to midnight according to the doomsday clock. It was two and a half minutes, right? They've just shaved thirty yeah. seconds off it. Yeah. What do we think of that? 
I don't know what the difference I... between two and a half and two minutes is, and sh- and Corey might, so I'll let her continue. <laughs> I am not sure that I agree with the choice that we're moving closer to nuclear Armageddon than, for example, we were in the 1950s when the U.S. and Soviet arsenals were growing like gangbusters and we were facing crises over Berlin and uh, the Prague Spring, all the all of that superpower interaction. Uh, but I grant you it probably the the minute hand probably should move given President Trump and Kim Jong un's behavior. Um, well, okay. So let me, I mean, it, it's an interesting moment here. And you know, wait, one wait, of the th- I'm sorry, I buried the headline. Um, the most important thing I have to say is that walking around London, I passed by Dolce and Gabbana, and in the window was the tiara of optimism. Oh, no. All sorts of gold and jewels, and then hanging uh, over the earphones were a bevy of roses. It looks like just the thing, David. So so when I get it, we'll put it in a display case in the third sub-basement or possibly next to Rosa's thorny crown of entropy in her silo. Well, I, you know, I think you should be entrusted with keeping the tiara of optimism. Please, by all means, pick it up and send the Dolce & Gabbana bill straight to us. Um, <laughs> the Ministry of Snark has unlimited resources. It has unlimited snark, anyway. But, you know, this week we're going to uh, witness a State of the Union address on the part of the President of the United States. Um, actually, it'll be taking place the day that this podcast comes out. And of course, you know, will be the usual, you know, I've already heard people saying this is a historic speech and a turning point and stuff. And that's all bullshit. Um, But, uh, (laughs) you know, I thought what I would do is uh, for a moment, talk about what we expect. And then I'd like to turn to each of you after we talk about that and and do kind of our state of the deep state um, episode and talk a little bit about what we think the state of the deep state is at the moment. Um, But first, Rosa, what do you expect from the State of the Union and the President of the United States? Well, I expect that we will embark upon what is now becoming a tradition, which is that uh, President Trump will successfully read from a teleprompter for 45 (laughs) minutes or so, after which the media and assorted pundits will proclaim their their awe and astonishment that he has been able to be so presidential for 45 minutes. Uh, and then the following day or the day after he will tweet something demented and we'll be back to uh, uh, crazy Trump. <laughs> crazy Trump. Well, see, that's unusually optimistic, Rosa, because you actually think mm-hmm. he will successfully read from the teleprompter. And he no, usually... no, I, 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 he occasionally does that. He, he managed at Davos to stay on message for at least 20 minutes at a time, uh, you know, wowing the world's media core, which only uh, has a memory that is 20 minutes long. Yeah, well, that's that's true. Ed, what do you expect? Well, I, I'd have to echo what Rosa said. I mean, we, we can... We can have months and months and months of every day, day in, day day out, uh, multiple times a day, Trump sort of being Trump and being crazy and talking about big buttons and 
signing non-disclosure agreements with porn stars and so forth. But, you know, if he's able to read from a tele- teleprompter for 20 minutes or 45 maybe on, on Tuesday night uh, without tripping or, you know, uh, playing sort of schoolyard bully insults with a, with a, an emerging nuclear power, we will give a standing ovation and uh, uh, go into paroxysms on, on, on cable news about how presidentially appears. It's extraordinary how low the bar is. Um, for Trump to clear. And, you know, it would be, the story would be if he didn't clear it. But if he does clear it, it's not a story. It's just what Rosa said. He can read for a while uh, and then stop reading. And it's nothing more than that. Yeah, the, the interesting thing is that him reading the teleprompter during the State of Union is probably the longest period of time he will spend reading all year. So you're thinking we should replace the transcript of his speech with like a little Shakespeare or something, something uh, improving. Yes, anything would be improving, to be perfectly honest. The alphabet maybe might be improving. Corey, now that you're English, what do you expect? So I have to say, I cannot remember a prior instance here on Deep State Radio where all four of us had the same view on a subject. But it sounds like we are absolutely right. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like we are unanimous in thinking it will be ho-hum for the president to read a speech crafted by his staff that he will in no way be bound by in his policy choices or personal comportment. Um, And... Uh, the media will be all lathered up about how this is a brand new Trump. And finally, after a year, he's getting the hang of being president. Um, Here's what to watch for. Here's the discriminating data about whether that could possibly be true. That is that the president is becoming presidential. He not only says things like, Uh, it's important to unify our country. He apologizes for his own behavior that has been so fractious to the country and goes 48 hours without recommencing that behavior. Corey, even for the season holder of the tier of optimism. That strikes me as a very optimistic thought. I grant you that, Rosa. I grant you that. Well, um, Ed, you have to write a column on this, I'm sure, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. your editors are like, we need you to write a column right after this is done. Is that Mm -hmm. correct? That's correct. That's correct. And so you've probably written this already, so you can go out to dinner. So what, you know, what does the column you write in advance actually say? Well, it's it's uncanny that you should say I'll be going out to dinner tomorrow night. I will indeed be in New York, not Washington, and I will be going out to dinner, booked uh, long before I figured out it coincided with the State of the Union. So what I'm going to do is watch it after the dinner Um, uh, because I I think this is one of the few occasions where a transcript will not suffice. You need to watch. Um, uh, I, I have already given you my pre-written column, um, but I'm going to, but I, but I'm <laughs> wow. going to write it. Short. I'm going to write it after, uh, um, I, I am going to write it after watching, after watching what he has to say and more importantly, how people react to it. Cause really this isn't as much about Trump as the sort of meta Trump is how people react to Trump. 
uh, well, I, I think is more important. Absolutely right. Yeah, and and one thing that will be really interesting, uh, obviously, is the degree to which we see any of the Republicans in Congress either cozying up or trying to distance themselves a little bit uh, in light of the most recent uh, news from the from the Mueller investigation camp, et cetera. Indeed. I mean, th- there is there is some very hopeful, rather earnest um, um, sort of Broder-esque commentary going on here that while Trump's first year was securing the base, um, his second ought to be reaching out to the center. Um, I don't think that'll happen, or or at least if it does, it you know it'll be a paragraph um, in a speech he reads out rather than a a thought through administrative change, a change in the in the administration. Um, but the test of that will be whether he waters down um, the more draconian elements of his of his immigration proposal, uh, particularly about um, inverted commas chain migration um, and um, uh, and the diversity. Um, green card, etc., uh, which I doubt he will do. But um, that—that's you know, it, to the extent we're taking the substance of what he says tomorrow seriously, I think that'll be the substance worth paying attention to. All right, so Rosa, let me let's let's play a little bit of a game here before we move on to the next subject. Oh, I love games, David. Yeah, no, this will be a good game. It's a role playing. You know, we love to do these role playing <laughs> games. And and I'm gonna I'm gonna play the role of Trump briefly. And here's here's what Trump's speech is gonna say. I'm great. I'm doing a great job, possibly the best job of any president ever. Our economy is fantastic. The stock market is up. We did a tax cut, and now all these companies have given lots and lots of people a big refund. Gorsuch, Gorsuch, the military needs to be stronger. We need to be safer. We need to build a wall. Immigrants are bad. We need to keep them out of the country. Um, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Infrastructure. That's the speech. Mm-hmm. What is that it? was what? excellent. Well, you did a great job. Thank, thank you. That was very presidential, actually, David. That's the one thing that really struck me <laughs> is finally you're, you're inhabiting that role. Yeah, what's no, the what's I, the game part of this? That that wasn't that much fun. Okay. <laughs> Look, it's not going to be that much fun. That's a very realistic game. Oh, uh, but but first of all, did, did I get it right for it roughly? Do you think? Yeah, I'm, absolutely. Yeah, so that's roughly what he's going to say. What are you going to be saying under your breath when he says all that stuff? I'm not going to be saying anything because I'm not going to be watching this because I'm going to go out to dinner. Oh, good for you. Not, not but, with not with me, I unfortunately. Yep. In the in the were I uh, forced because if someone were to hold a gun to my head, for instance, and make <laughs> me watch it, I would be muttering darkly under my breath, and I would be muttering a series of things like like A, no, you didn't. B, you can't take credit for that. C, that's actually evil. And D, that's not so evil, but you're going to undermine it tomorrow with a demented tweet. Uh, and then I would, you know, struggle with the gun and go out to dinner and. Because I would prevail, of course, owing to my incredible law enforcement training. Um, what is the struggle with a gun? That sounds very uh, well, dark, Rosa. I know, I know. Well, but I'm trying to think that is the only circumstance in which you could make me watch this if there was a gun to my head. Oh, I see. There's a gun to your head. All right. Yes. Well, okay. So, Corey, one of the things the president's going to say in his speech is we need more money for the American military. Now, you know, you love the American military. You've said this on many occasions, and you think we should have a strong defense. 
But let me just ask you one very simple question. If the United States spends more on defense than the next 12 or 15 countries added up, and most of those countries, in fact, all but one or two of them, are actually our allies, so it's actually additive, it's we're not in competition with them, is there any credible case that can be made by the uh, the left or by the right that the United States Defense Department needs a penny more than it's getting? <laughs> yes, a credible case can be made. And that credible case is that for nine of the last 10 years, the Defense Department, like the rest of the United States government, has been operating under arbitrary budget caps uh, that required them to cut across the board 10% and limited the federal government's department's ability to manage their resources. That has actually been really bad for the Defense Department. As you rightly noted, David, I'm a conservative, which is synonymous with being cheap, and I do not- Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Check, 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 check the so other conservatives, Corey. <laughs> and yet, um, I think possibly one other subject on which we four might agree is that Republicans in Congress are disgracing themselves just now in their unwillingness to stand up to President Trump, in their incapacity to undertake the fundamental building blocks of their job, Passing a federal budget, I think what we are likely still on track for is continuing resolutions through this year again, which um, which are also a terrible way to spend the Defense Department's money. So I don't think we're actually going to get much more money for defense because I don't think President Trump and the people around him and uh, the leadership in the Congress is good enough at their job to be able to pass a budget. I don't see any scenario in which Democrats in Congress ever give up on the 50-50 domestic and defense spending split of the federal budget that the Murray-Ryan uh, budget deal put into place. I feel like we ought to just accept that that's the baseline and move on from there. Because if I were a Democrat, I'd never vote for a budget that that gave up on that. And what it looks to me like Mitch Mulvaney, the head of OMB and the president of the United States are doing, is trying to make it safe for Republicans to vote for debt onto infinity. As you scoffingly said, David, the very people who are supposed to be fiscal conservatives are going to add a trillion two hundred billion dollars to the debt um, if if the budget that the president imagines and that Congress is working on gets passed but I actually don't think it will get passed well I don't think it will get passed either um, Ed, before we get on to the next thing, I, there was one other question I wanted to ask you about. Maybe Corey will have a view on this. Donald Trump was in Davos last week, and he, you know, was making nice with uh, your prime minister, um, Theresa May, and and was trying to show that everything was fine in the relationship. But at the time of of his meeting, a story broke in Bloomberg, I think, that said that 
earlier, Trump had said he's not coming to the UK unless there are no demonstrations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which... <laughs> Which I thought was kind of a facet, and and yet she said, "Well, okay, let's let's see what we can do in sort of getting this trip set up." Maybe, maybe they could set up like a Potemkin village, like a Potemkin London for him, and Corey and others could be hired to sort of stand out in the streets, cheering and tossing rose petals at his feet. Oh, I assure you that if I'm in the president's Potemkin village, I'm holding a protest <laughs> sign. <laughs> yeah, it says Trump travels all the way to London, and there's another damn never Trumper. <laughs> yeah, he, he can't he can't escape them. What are the odds, Ed, you having been born and raised in this country, that Donald Trump could go to the United Kingdom and not see the biggest demonstrations that any American president has ever seen? I think that the odds of that are very low. Uh, I, I, this would rival the kind of demos you saw in 2003 before the Iraq war, the, the Blair-faced um, of between one and two million. Um, the the strength of feeling there is, is in many many other supposedly non-shithole countries is, is fairly high. And so I think Trump would go and he would pronounce it a shithole country pretty quickly um, in the face of all the, of all the people who clearly d- don't like him. Theresa May you know, is in a difficult position because um, she herself is not popular, not credible, um, and not perceived uh, to be a, a highly competent prime minister. Um, but her bet, or at least the bet of the the loonies and fruitcakes in her party, that, whom she has to keep in line if she's going to um, negotiate a deal with the European Union, um, is that America will come riding in on a white horse um, and um, and save Brexit Britain from the consequences of itself uh, in the form of some fairy godmother um, trade deal, some miraculous trade deal that will um, be way better than being part of the single market. And so May has to try and, you know, aim for that um, and alienating the American president whose dearest wish is to ride down the mall um, in a carriage with the queen in a, an official state visit, not a not a working presidential visit as May no, is No, and offering. he's been specific, hasn't he? He wants the big gold carriage. Totally. He wants the fairy tale <laughs> setting. He, he's got to have that or there's no point. And that means addressing parliament. Uh, so, you know, forget the kinds of public demonstrations that would... Um, inevitably provoke and entail, um, I think there would be significant sort of uh, portions of parliament who would refuse to turn up for such a speech. So she may May's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. There's, there's nothing she can do, you know, that doesn't involve either alienating the majority of British public opinion and her fellow members of parliament or alienating the president of the United States. And I think their meeting, their brief um Meeting in Davos uh, last Thursday, you know, you could see with the body language, he kept saying that we're we're joined at the hip, our militaries are joined at the hip, and um, we really like each other. You're very, very nice, Teresa. And you could see she was even more sort of robotically, um, you know, um, (laughs) smiling than she normally does. Um, And the contrast with the body language, you know, a little bit later that day between Bibi Netanyahu and and Trump, where it was all smiles and backslapping and genuine sort of warmth of feeling, seemingly. Um, well, Bibi, Bibi was practically humping Trump's leg. Yeah. He was, 
There was oh, a. David, come on! Yeah. I really didn't need that visual. Yeah, but that's the way BV is these days. I mean, he, he, he I can like hear going, the laughter in your voice, David. You are completely unrepentant. I'm totally unrepentant. I mean, but it, that is just the way he is. You know, I mean, Tony Blair. Um, what, what what was it? Tony Blair was once called Bush's poodle. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, well, I think you know you have to go a step past that to describe the way Bibi and Trump are relating to each other these days. He is the poodle's <laughs> poodle. He's <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, t- t- tomorrow night at the at the State of the Union, some Democrats are not going to show up. But I think the bigger story is that 33 of the Republican leaders in the Congress have already said they're not going to show up the year after. That they're like leaving town. And, you know, even if the Republicans are standing up to applaud Trump, the growing numbers of them that are just saying, I think I've had enough of this business is is a bigger reflection on Trump than all their standing ovations. Don't you think, Rosa? (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Thank you for elaborating. <laughs> I'll elaborate, I'm stunned, David. In, I'm stunned into silence still by your visual, David. <laughs> of little of the little baby dog? Yeah, well, mm. work on that. <laughs> Corey? Uh, okay, I will change the subject and answer Thank David's you, Corey. question. You're very welcome, my dear Rosa. Um, which is that the fact that so many Republicans, despite having a president of their own party uh, in office and despite having control of both houses of Congress at the moment, that 30 some members of Congress do not want to risk putting themselves in front of voters, I think shows that uh, Republicans have not succeeded in getting done things their voters want to get done. And that perhaps the president is uh, less a champion of Republican values than the pre- than the president himself claims. Right? He has claimed he has these long coattails that the public's behind him, but in fact, uh, what it looks like is that the last two two three special elections. The person the president has supported has not been elected, and Republicans can see the handwriting on the wall. Yeah, they can. Now, the other thing that's, of course, happening behind the scenes here is that the there, there are a lot of rumblings in the deep state, a lot of rumblings associated with what Sarah Sanders um, has, recall, has referred to as Russia fever. She's saying I, uh, she, that she hopes that Russia fever will be breaking. But we've had, uh, we've had the deputy uh, director of the FBI resign, Andrew McCabe, uh, who was one of a number of people that had been targeted by Trump uh, as a potential um, um, uh, uh, threat to, to him uh, in, in the Russia investigation. Trump not apparently remembering that it was a former uh, deputy at the Justice Department who was deep throat. Um, But, you know, go ahead. Uh, uh, He's leaving. uh, And there's a lot of activity, it seems, behind the scenes uh, with regard to the Nunez memo and, um, and, and the Mueller investigation heating up and talking to other people. 
And uh, I just thought it would be good before we get into the State of the Union to sort of understand where we are in the backdrop of all of this, you know, in other words, the state of the deep state, uh, and turn to you, Rosa, uh, as you look at these things, both from a, a national security perspective and, and also possibly from a law enforcement and legal perspective. Where are we at the moment? Uh, well, we do seem, I mean, if, if, if there was a doomsday clock for Donald Trump's presidency, um, I think it would be fair to say that that clock is uh, advanced by a couple of minutes closer to uh, Trump apocalypse. Uh, which is to say some form of uh, indictment or unindicted co-conspirator declaration. And indeed, if the Democrats win in the midterm elections, a little bit edging a little closer to impeachment possibilities, because it, it all of the recent signs uh, do seem to suggest that Mueller's investigation is sort of closing in on some kind of obstruction of justice charges, even if there is no underlying uh, Russia conspiracy that they can, in fact, find, which, which frankly, I, I continue to suspect that they're not going to find a major Russia smoking gun. Uh, they're just going to find uh, good old fashioned uh, money grubbing corruption of various sorts. Um, and I suspect they're already finding that. Um, so, so, you know, it's it doesn't look great for Donald Trump. I think I think it's no surprise that we're seeing accelerating attacks uh, coming from some in the Republican camp uh, against the FBI, really just to sort of try to discredit the entire enterprise. And and I have to say, just as a footnote, that in some ways that that shocks me uh, almost more than anything. You know, the the degree to which. Um, uh, the FBI, which has really long been regarded as a as a fairly sacred institution in mainstream American politics, and to the extent that it was criticized, it tended to be criticized from the left uh, as an instrument of uh, Big Brother and and the the power structure. The the degree to which the Republicans have been willing to just sacrifice that is kind of astonishing, and the willingness of so many Americans apparently to to form the belief over a remarkably short period of time that the FBI is just part of this vast conspiracy against Trump is is pretty stunning and pretty depressing. I absolutely agree with Rosa. It is for me the most shocking thing to see my fellow conservatives, uh, you know, who have forever held up law and order as one of the central principles of our doctrine suddenly think the FBI is a hotbed of liberals um, and and untrustworthy. Yeah. Well, they're going not just after the FBI. They seem to be going after the Department of Justice. One of the interesting things that sort of bubbled up in the news today was that when the White House was asked whether the Justice Department would be involved in vetting this Nunez memo before it was released, the White House said, oh, no, they have no role to play in this. Um, in fact, one of the weird things that's happening in this administration is increasingly, literally with every passing day, some new part of the government dissociates itself from the White House. You know, to, well, I mean, to, you? Yeah, yeah, I would. But, 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 for example, today, in a very weird thing that is not directly on point with this, the head of the FCC came out 180 degrees opposed 
to a plan the White House announced that they might want to nationalize the 5G network for national security reasons. And literally within 12 hours, the head of the FCC, picked by the president, a super partisan guy said, no way, we're not doing that, um, <laughs> released a, an official statement. And this is, you know, the State Department does this. Every part of the government is, is starting to do this now. The president, it's not even the whole White House because the president is on a regular basis saying stuff that, doesn't scan with what McMaster said. This is, you know, when you talk about the state of the deep state, it seems like the deep state is sort of coalescing and the White House is sort of increasingly being isolated. What do you think, Ed? Well, I, I, as the only one um, today who's actually sitting in the third sub-basement and therefore with the advantage of looking on the closed circuit cameras at other people in isolated rooms in within the deep state, um, I can say they're all looking pretty <laughs> cheerful. They're, they're all actually, they're looking pretty, pretty resolute um, and on firm ground um, as to where and when they should stand up to, to the Trump administration's latest blindsider. And Ajit Pai um, of the FCC, you know, was clearly on very firm ground when he said, no, we're not going to be nationalizing 5G. Um, and that's just a very small example of the lack of respect. No, you, I'll give you another example. Maybe, maybe Corey wants to respond to the other example. In the past couple of days, the commander of CENTCOM has been traveling around the region. He was in Afghanistan, the region being the Middle East. He was in Afghanistan. And one of the things that he was saying was uh, that the goal in Afghanistan was to get the Taliban into reconciliation talks. And yeah. today, the president, or the day we're recording this, the president comes out and says, oh, no, there's no talking to the Taliban, which, by the yeah. way, is also antithetical to what McMaster had said. Let's just throw in uh, last week's remarks by John Kelly, the White House chief of staff, that President Trump's views on the border ball were uninformed. <laughs> right. And then Trump drops by unannounced into Kelly's <laughs> office to say, well, you know, I'm the president. Um Corey, you were in the so, Bush administration, which was, you know, chaotic mess at the beginning. Uh, have, did you ever so, see anything like this? So, yes, it's true that I thought when I was working in the Bush White House that I was working in the most inchoate dysfunctional administration in American history. And I was probably right at the time, but the next two administrations, White Houses have actually been surprisingly worse than the Bush White House in the first term. President Obama, because he didn't appear to trust anyone in the government to do anything. And so Ben Rhodes uh, was, you know, serving the function of the Secretary of State and the State Department had no <laughs> idea what was happening. Um, but the Trump administration, uh, the thing about the Trump administration was for the first three months of the administration, if it had been crazy chaotic, you could chalk that up to, wow, disparate parts of the party, people who don't have a lot of experience at this, the president's got some unusual policies he's trying to put in place. But in fact, this is not um, friction that's going to smooth out, neither because the president wants it to smooth out. He doesn't. I mean... Tom Wright has been better on the historic, historicity of President Trump as a manager than anybody. And this is how President Trump has always done business. 
He's trying to run the government like a family business where the Justice Department works for him and he can tell them what they get to see and don't see, that the rule of law in no way constrains him. I, the only thing I would bridle at um, in, in this conversation is that I really don't like use of the term deep state. And yes, yes, I know it is what we call our podcast, but I object holy, to it even there. Macro. Because the deep, the deep state, like, it's a technical term, and it is where um, in authoritarian governments, right, elections have no uh, consequence because the authoritarian ruler of the country has embedded in departments of governance uh, people who will act by his will, irrespective of who gets elected president. So what we are seeing in the United States is not that. What we are seeing is that the departments of government and average Americans are holding the administration count accountable to the law of the land. Um, and people in the departments are not allowing President Trump's desire are not for the most part, allowing President Trump's desire to be outside the law, to be outside the checks and balances of American democracy, to, to hold sway. That's actually the system functioning as it's supposed to. That's not the deep state preventing an elected president from carrying out policy. No, I think that's right. And for the, you know, I know we've said this before, but it's always worth saying again, uh, as you all know, uh, civil servants, military personnel, and federal civil servants all take an oath to the Constitution of the United States, not to the President of the United States. Yeah, can I can I sort of one slightly jarring note here? Um, More jarring than Corey saying we shouldn't call this the deep state radio. I mean, for Christ's sakes, I'm like sitting here going, um, okay. I can't <laughs> exceed that. Uh, Corey, Corey's going to have to buy that tiara. Uh, in Dolce Gabbana herself, I think, to make up for it, aren't you, Corey? Yeah. Uh, it's on your own dime. Um, I'm at IISS expense account that she's doing. Corey, that should definitely be your first official act at IISS, is trying to see if you could get that TR on an expense account. So I will give Corey a challenge since she's in London that one of the reasons I'm worried about. Uh, more worried about the Trump administration and the deep state um, than Corey's just um, very eloquently um, put forward it is because I think that the destruction in an already fairly battered, fairly demoralized um, federal civil service, um, including the foreign service, um, is going to weigh out last Trump. The the sort of discouragement of any any public service ethos to the extent you know, there was a strong one anyway, is I think of lasting consequence and of great damage. Um, and the London sort of piece of this is when I look at um, all of Britain's woes, mostly self-inflicted nowadays, the the one silver lining I take from uh, from comparing it with Trump's America, you know, which is easily reversible, unlike Brexit, or at least it, we can foresee the moment where there will not be a Trump around. The one sort of silver lining I see in Britain is that the civil service, and for the most part, the police, the intelligence agencies, the military, etc., are not 
targets of partisan uh, of partisan politics. There is a general sort of public trust for the non-elected portions of government um, that is now is now disappearing pretty rapidly in Trump's Washington. And I think that that steel frame, you know, of how how a country can operate, how a country functions, whether governance is possible, whether there's an idea of being a neutral public servant is an important one in the longer term. And I think we we might be understating the degree to which Trump is destroying sort of any bipartisan civility and forbearance on this on this front. Okay, well, th- that's a good point. And I think I will go a step further. First of all, I must, in the defense of the name of this uh, podcast, um, <clears throat> you know, quote, you know, Corey would typically quote, quote, you know, Henry Clay at this point or, um, you know, some, you know, Greek forefather. But I, 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 I'm going to go with Mel Brooks um, and, and I'm going to paraphrase him. But when he was asked about the producers and about making a musical about Nazism, he said, you know, sarcasm is a tool we have to bring back, you know, bad ideas uh, uh, down to size, and and if we can laugh at 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 people, um, uh, then they lose a lot of their power. And obviously, the idea behind deep state radio is to laugh a bit at this concept of the deep state um, uh, being the master puppeteers uh, in the United States government, or being this great dark malevolent force as the. Uh, Alex Jones crowd would have us believe it was. Um, but having said that, uh, and and I, I think we'll stick with the name of the podcast if that's okay, Corey. But 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 of course, but, David. Thanks. But 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 having said <laughs> that, I think the, the 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 point that Ed has made is a is a really good point, uh, or at least in one of the things that I took from Ed's comment, which is the deep state is full of public servants. Who are doing their jobs, who serve the Constitution, who try not to be swayed by politics, who try to do the right thing. And as of right now, if we were keeping score uh, with the Republican leadership heading to the hills or defending the indefensible in terms of Trump, uh, with the Mueller investigation, you know, gaining steam and whether or not there was collusion with the Russians, there's certainly a lot of other stuff going on there that suggests that Trump should be called out either for corruption or for um, violating the emoluments clause or for um, uh, being too soft on on the Russians or for not investigating or trying to stop meddling in our elections or et cetera, et cetera. The deep state at the moment seems to be in pretty good shape. And I, I think the implication of both what, uh, well, what all of you have said is that we're going to get to the end of this story and it's going to look like these professional career civil servants in the United States government will have done themselves proud. Um, and those who were attacking them will be seen to be have been attacking them because they were afraid that they would do themselves proud and that they would knock them out of the box, which hopefully will happen. Is, does anybody disagree with that? Nope. I think we are once again unanimous, David, that, that it will be hardworking, diligent, law and order Americans who who bring the Trump presidency to an end. 
But that's not inconsistent with Ed's gloomy warning that, uh, you know, you can only you can only batter these institutions so much without doing damage that will take many years to to undo. Uh, and I certainly think that that in many quarters of the federal government, you know, State Department probably being only the most well publicized and egregious that that even though we may come out of this saying, hey, good job, guys, you know, you hung in there. Uh, and stood up for uh, stood up for what was right. Um, you know, it's going to take a long time to recover. Ed, do you want to throw in a final comment here? I would like to just round off the the the, the foursome unanimity and say I agree with everybody on everything except that wrote, uh, uh, no, except Corey's mildly mischievous suggestion that Deep State was was wrongly named. I think we should keep the name, <laughs> and you should buy that tiara. <laughs> and wear it totally total. buy the tiara wear it you can as only you can um i'm sure rosa is out in the backyard every morning picking new thorns for her thorn <laughs> i am <laughs> my yard is full of thorns um, so you know do, you know you gotta you gotta keep up uh cory but but you know i think that's where we end this episode which is to say the state of the deep state is strong but it is also at risk and one of the reasons it's at risk is because it's strong and because it poses a threat to people who would do damage to our values and our and and the way our system works. Um, we'll be back in a couple of days. But remember, if you come up with a great topic for an upcoming episode or you come up with some great way to promote Deep State Radio uh, and to get new listeners, you know, if, if you can, you know, recruit them yourself or come up with some other idea, we will send to you fantastic swag. And in addition to the Deep State Radio mugs, which currently exist, um, <laughs> uh, despite Corey's attacks on, on the name, uh, we will be... Uh, also, starting this week, sending out Deep State Radio T-shirts um, that 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 um, have uh, fabulous uh, quotes from the President of the United States on them, <laughs> and, and um, will will make you you know I mean go well with a crown of uh, uh, the heavy crown of entropy or go well with the tiara of optimism. All it takes is that you tweet something out and, you know, put in the hashtag Deep State Radio or um, uh, send us an email or, 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 or however you wish to reach out to us. Uh, and uh, every week we send out five of these. So this week, five mugs and five T-shirts. So please uh, give us your best ideas. And thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you. <laughs>